verse 7. Then the breath of life and the man... Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Then we'll flip over to Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. May God bless this reading. Thank you. Hello? Is that on? Sorry about that. Life's full of surprises. Well, you never know when the mics are going to work. Uh, this morning, uh, I was surprised to find out how cold it was. Um, the Victorians are meant to bring the warm weather with them, but they haven't failed us so far. So we're looking forward to when it gets a bit warmer. We're talking about surprises. Some surprises are good and some surprises are not so good. Um, I can remember a surprise that I particularly had back about halfway through last year. Uh, my wife said to me, you better hurry home from golf because I'm cooking up a roast dinner for you and something else is a big surprise. I said, okay, I'll be in that. So I hurried home and uh, I remember walking up the corridor of our home and as I stepped into the door, my son Oliver, who was meant to be in Canada, jumped out and said, surprise, Dad. And I said, surprise wasn't the word I could use. I just let you fill, I'll fill you in on Oliver. He's, Oliver's six foot four. He can empty a fridge if it contents in our flat. So I could, the surprise was that the grocery bill was going to go through the roof. <laughs> that was the surprise. So while I was just coming to terms with the very fact that Oliver was back in home, suddenly, from behind another door, his new Canadian girlfriend jumped out. Surprise! Now, that was a surprise, let me tell you. Um, we won't go into any further discussion on the bedding arrangements for the night, but I had that pretty well worked out. So, talking of surprises, the Bible teaches us clearly that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And consequently, with the passage we just read, the church in Thessalonica was in full steam panic mode. They were racing all over the place, trying to get things done because they believed that the second coming of Jesus was imminent. It was, could have been weeks, just months away. And even Paul himself thought that the second coming would happen in his lifetime. The thing is, when Paul planted this church in Macedonia, in Thessalonica, his preaching of the message of God was so powerful that it derived two sorts of responses. One came from the Jews who hated him and they were extremely jealous of the attention that he was getting and the people who were coming over to 
their side and they vehemently opposed him. Whereas the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, they loved his preaching and they welcomed him and wanted him to stay on. However, the opposition to Paul's ministry from the Jewish sector became so intense that Paul actually had to leave after three weeks. Now, just to give you an idea of how versatile and clever Paul was, to set up a church in Thessalonica in three weeks was just beyond an imagination. One of the problems was that his ministry came to such an abrupt halt that there were many things that were left undone in the church, like doctrinal issues that they didn't have time to sort out. The one, one question that remained and remained unanswered, and more especially the question of the resurrection of those who had fallen asleep. They wondered what happened to those who had fallen asleep. So the answer to the question was most urgent and pressing for one particular reason. They thought Jesus would come back at any moment and they wondered what would happen to their fellow Christians who had fallen asleep and been taken away from them. That was their main worry. Paul's answer was this. He said, in the resurrection, those that remained and were alive would not proceed or go before those who are dead. In other words, there was a definite order to be followed. We need to be aware in the early part of Paul's ministry, Paul expected, as I said, a speedy return of Christ. He thought it was weeks and months away. Notice in this passage the metaphorical term, use of the term asleep. It's a beautiful gentle term for saying that someone is with the Lord. It's not an uncommon term in the scriptures. I looked it up and in the Old Testament it's used 35 times. In the New Testament, just half a dozen times. When we use this particular term, we can think of people and stories like the story of Lazarus where they came to the tomb and Jesus said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And then, of course, in the book of Acts, we've got the, you've got to be careful how you say this, where Stephen got stoned, not, not in the way that we know, but was, he had rocks thrown at him. So when Stephen died, the scripture reports that he fell asleep. And of course, even more sensational was Jairus's 12-year-old daughter, Jairus being the, in charge of the synagogue. And he was with Jesus when it was reported his daughter, who had been sick, they came and told him, your daughter is dead. So we fast forward that, and Jesus arrives at the house of Jairus where there is much wailing and mourning carrying on. And he says in a loud voice, she is not dead, but asleep. And their response, they laughed at him. So Jesus took her by the hand and said, Talithakum, my child, get up. And her spirit returned, and she was given back to her parents. Bob mentioned a couple of, Bob or John mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the subject of death, and it's never an easy topic to tackle, but we need to often look at it because it's part of Scripture. The wounds are always deep when the death takes a loved one, and there remains much confusion amongst Christians as to what actually takes place when a Christian goes to sleep. And that is why Paul addresses the problem, and I quote, the problem of ignorance 
in verse 13, where it says, Brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. When we look at the word ignorant, in this particular context, it describes a person being in a state of being totally unaware. All the things are out in front of him to show him exactly a picture of what's going on, but he cannot see them. And they, that, that's why it uses the term ignorant there. The thing is that Australians, we tend to put a different slant on how the term ignorant is used. I'll give you an example. Have you ever been in a, at a dinner party enjoying a quiet conversation with someone else and someone just comes in and butts into the conversation uninvited? And usually it happens to be a person you've been trying to dodge all night. And this person is an expert on all subjects and life and all facets of life, a, a towering font of information. And they stand there and butt in on the conversation. And they can talk about stuff that you could never believe, like they can give you the last two chapters of the, what happened in Home and Away. I mean, terrific stuff, riveting stuff. <laughs> and then they could probably give you a blow-by-blow -blow description of the finer points of synchronised swimming. Now, that's something you'd all want to know. And usually what they do, what their main aim is, is to introduce the family into the conversation because they've got children and they're all brilliant, absolutely brilliant. As a matter of fact, one of them came top in, well, they said it was Japanese, but it turned out to be origami, so you can take it. <laughs> we'll, we'll let that one pass. But, um, and another one, apparently was ducks and came first in just about everything except the egg and spoon race, so they were fairly clever children. But we'll get back to why Paul's church was uncertain about what happened to those who have fallen asleep. The passage we're looking at today does not demand an explanation of what the Bible says about death, but I'm going to take a speaker's liberty and digress and give a brief outline of what I feel the Bible teaches about being asleep. Of all the topics in scripture, the topic of the spirit, soul and body and the afterlife is one that demands a lot of attention and is one of the most intriguing doctrines that we have. It also produces different theories. One of the modern theories believed by many Christians is that the soul is an immortal entity within us which goes on living after death. Now that might sound very nice, but it's not scriptural. It's not in the Bible. So what exactly is man? How was he created by God? The Bible verse I've used for this is Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. So let's look at this verse and see what the Bible says about the creation of man. I'll read the verse out here again so we can have another think about it. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living soul. I'll read that again. Three things happened there. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. That's the first thing. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that's the second thing. And the man became a living soul. Look, there are two important points here to look at at this verse. Firstly, 
God did not put a soul into man. Okay? God did not put a soul into man. And secondly, note that Adam wasn't given a soul. He became a soul. That's what the verse says. Right at the end there it says, and the man which was Adam became a living soul. I remember some years ago, writing in the front of my Bible, the words of the renowned theologian, philosopher and and writer, C.J. Lewis, C.S. Lewis. He's, of course, the writer of The Lime, the Witch in the Wardrobe, Narnia, Problems of Pain and other brilliant, brilliant writings. And this is what it said. He said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. I want to repeat that to you. You don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. These few words had a great impact on me, much self-questioning went on in my mind and reflection on the subject. So the way I now understand it is like this, that God formed the body from the dust of the ground, then he breathed his life-giving spirit into a lifeless body and the result was a soul or a living being. A living being or a soul or a person. Let's have a look at what happens from Ecclesiastes. When a person dies, the reverse takes place. When the breath of life departs from the body, the soul or being no longer exists. It's lifeless. Scripture says this, The dust returns to the ground where it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Quite clear. This is the equation we're left with after all that. That the breath of God equals the spirit of God and the soul equals life or being. Life or being. The breath of God is what gives man life and makes him a living soul. What happened when Jesus died on the cross? He bowed his head, he gave up his spirit and his spirit returned to the Father. At the resurrection, God reunites the body and his life-giving spirit and the person lives again. I'll admit when I was preparing this sermon that when you look at words like the soul and the spirit and that they are often used in different various contexts and they can mean different things. For instance, in the King James Version, the term soul is used 28 times for different words. So you can imagine the confusion. So with difficult passages such as this and terminology that's sometimes hard to get your head around, it pays to tread carefully and not to be too dogmatic. We'll move back on to Paul's concerns. His concerns with the church in Thessalonica. His first concern was to reassure the church that those who were asleep would not be left behind. That was his first concern. And his second concern was that some were grieving unnecessarily like the rest of men, that is, men without hope. This does not call for, to forgo the grieving process. When life is cut short, and when old age claims the loved one, then the grieving process should begin. But Paul is stating here that grieving the process for a believer is different because we believe that Jesus died and rose again and our hope is that we will be resurrected with him. 
Those who choose not to place their faith in Jesus have no hope. When we look at the word hope in the worldly sense, it generally suggests a degree of uncertainty. You go to the races, your horse might win. You go to the TAB, you may get a winner. But there's always the thought of uncertainty. That is absolutely not what is meant by the Christian hope. The Christian hope is never about wishful thinking. The worldly hope is a hope without any guarantee because it is subject to changeable people and changeable circumstances. The Christian hope, however, is guaranteed because it is anchored in Jesus Christ, the unchanging Son of God and his unchanging word. So Paul is saying here that men without hope grieve differently to those who have hope. 